All right, grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. You may be wondering if we're ever actually going to get out of chapter 3, because if you've been paying attention, we've been in chapter 3 for a number of weeks now. Uh, But this will be our last Sunday in this chapter. Uh, This is Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism, and I just want to begin by reading the text to you. It's Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 through 17. Here's what Matthew writes concerning Jesus' baptism. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This scene is absolutely pregnant with meaning and staggering in its significance, But it's often actually an overlooked scene in the life of the Lord Jesus. When we think of the most seminal moments, the most significant moments in Jesus' life, I think we often think of his preaching ministry or his healing ministry or his exorcisms or, supremely, his crucifixion and his resurrection. But for many of us, we don't don't assign a tremendous amount of significance to Jesus' baptism. I'm hopeful that today we'll come to think about the baptism of Jesus differently, more significantly. Now, this morning's message may feel to you a little bit like a a birdshot shotgun blast, as many points, themes, and theological threads will emerge from this one text. But in many ways, that's the wonder of the gospel. As Paul says in Ephesians, the gospel is, quote, the manifold wisdom of God, the manifold wisdom. That's to say that it's multi-layered, it's varied, it's deep, it's rich, it's not unidimensional. But how do we access those layers of meaning? Well, we do it by doing what we've been doing through this whole Matthew series. That is, by reading Matthew through the lens of the Old Testament. By reading it as a continuation of the Old Testament story. And by being attuned to the locales, phrases, and themes of the Old Testament that Matthew is employing to teach us. And remember, we're looking for meaning, not raw data. We're looking for meaning, not raw data. It's easy enough to say, well, Jesus was baptized as an example for us so that we know that we should be baptized too. True enough. But beyond being exemplary, what does Jesus' baptism mean? What does it mean? Again, to plumb the depths of that meaning, we need to be thinking with our Old Testament references in the forefront of our minds. We've already explored the fact that in Scripture, particularly Old Testament Scripture, geography isn't just geographical, it's theological. In Scripture, geography isn't just geographical, it's theological. Biblically, places have meanings. Places have meanings. The meaning of a place is tethered to the acts of God that have taken place there. So to round out our understanding of this baptismal scene, we need to consider the significance of the locales that are mentioned in the text. Verse 13 says, 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. Now Galilee was in the north of the promised land, where the northern tribes had lived before Assyria and Babylon, before those two exiles had occurred, and had broken up those tribes, causing so much intermarriage and relocation as to make their reassembly impossible. When you see Galilee, think the lost northern tribes of Israel. Jesus comes from Galilee to the Jordan for his baptism to indicate that he is renewing and reconstituting Israel. That is to say that Israel is going to have a resurrection. There were, during Jesus' day, just two remaining tribes, the southernmost tribes. So Jesus comes from the north, re-entering the land with all of the other symbolism that we're just about to unpack. And this is meaningful that he comes from Galilee, representing these ten northern tribes that, as far as anyone knew, were just lost could never be recovered, could never be reassembled. Jesus is making a statement by traveling from Galilee to the Jordan. And the Jordan, as we've discussed, is the river that was crossed by the Israelites centuries earlier in order to enter into the promised land and begin taking possession of said promised land. The crossing of the Jordan marked the end of the Exodus and the beginning of the conquest of Canaan, the promised land. As the people of God began driving out their enemies before them in order to possess their covenant inheritance. So Jesus comes from Galilee, the land of the lost tribes, to re-enter the land as the greater Joshua. And he's retaking the land as he drives out the new Canaanites, if you will, that being the demonic enemies who had set up shop in the land and among God's people. We discussed that in brief last week how riddled the land had become with demonic spirits and powers. It had been re-inhabited. It had been taken over again spiritually. So Jesus recrosses the Jordan, re-enters the land, and begins to remove the enemies yet again from that land. This is the end of another exodus and a new entrance into the land to vanquish a new enemy, not the Canaanites, but Satan, sin, and death. First, typologically or or symbolically, in his exercising ministry, as as in exercising demons, and then ultimately in his justifying work on the cross, which Paul says, quote, disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame. We've already considered the theological meaning of the Jordan as the gate to the promised land, but there's yet more significance bound up in the geography of the Jordan. You see, the Jordan River, which Yahweh used as the gate to the promised land, is the eastern border of the land that we call the promised land that was called Canaan. It's the eastern border. That's significant because in the book of Genesis, we're told that God planted the garden on the east side of the area known as Eden. And when man lost fellowship with God, he was driven out from the east side where God then placed the cherubim to deny them entrance. You see, Eden and the Garden of Eden are not the exact same place. The Garden of Eden existed within the area that was more broad that was called Eden. And the garden is on the east side and the entrance to that garden is on the east 
side. Now, in Scripture, from that point onward, eastern entrances are types or symbols of re-entrance into the Garden of Eden, back into God's presence. The entrance to the tabernacle and the temple, for example, was on the east side. Why? Because it symbolized entrance back into God's presence. It's a symbol that was established by the garden having been planted on the east side of Eden and by the entrance to that garden being on the east side. Now, for the nerds in the room, you could say it this way. Our eschatological hope is Edenic. That is to say that we're trying to get back into the eastern gate, back into the Garden of Eden, when the curse gets reversed and we can be back where God had originally placed Adam and Eve. Then we see that the Jordan which first functions as a barrier to the promised land because it was impassable, God turns into the gate that allows entry into the promised land. Do you see what God was signaling? He's signaling this, paradise, my presence, my blessing, the reconsummation of heaven and earth as existed in the garden had been closed to you. My presence, heaven and earth interacting properly, all of that had been inaccessible. But the gate out of which I once sent you is a gate that I'm going to reopen. I'm going to reopen. That's why there are all these eastern entrances into places that are emblematic of God's presence and blessing. This eastern entrance into the land signified entrance back into God's presence and blessing. Related to all of this, because everything in the Bible is related, is another very significant event that took place at this site, the Jordan River, that parallels the baptism of Jesus. You see, it was in the midst of a parted river Jordan that Elijah, the great prophet, was taken up into heaven. I'm sure you're familiar with the account, but I'll read it for you. 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 6 through 13. Then Elijah said to him, him here being Elisha, the protege of Elijah. He said this to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak, and he rolled it up, and he struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. We've seen that before, haven't we? In, in fact, in the same spot. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes, and he tore them in two pieces, and he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him, and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. 
So Elijah splits the Jordan and enters into heaven. The Lord Jesus, at the Jordan, splits the heavens and they descend on him. You see? This all means something. It means that Jesus is the greater Elijah who both comes from heaven and brings it with him. It's the idea. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth, as it is in heaven. The gospel of the kingdom is not, get us out of here like you snatched up Elijah. The gospel of the kingdom is, empower us by your spirit to bring heaven here. See, in the garden, there was perfect harmony between heaven and earth. No discord between the two at all. In the garden, what was happening in heaven is what was happening on earth. But after the fall, you have one thing that's happening in heaven, you have a very different thing that's happening on the earth. They're no longer consummated. They've been torn asunder. Now, the tabernacle and the temple are foretastes of the reconsummation of heaven and earth because they're copies of the heavenly temple that then get to exist on the earth. Again, this is signaling something that's taking us back to the Garden of Eden. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, they, that being the Levitical priests, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. You see, that's one of the major themes of redemption, the reconsummation of heaven and earth, where the worship that's taking place in heaven is also taking place on the earth. Now, in the Old Covenant days, that reconsummation was pushed forward through their worship at and around the copy of the heavenly temple. But in the New Covenant days, that reconsummation is pushed forward through our worship as a heavenly temple. Christ as the cornerstone, and we are built up into a living temple. So we ought to see in Jesus' baptism the beginning of another phase in that work of reconsummating heaven and earth. See, the tabernacle was a phase in that program. The temple was a phase in that program. And the baptism of Jesus is the beginning of the next phase in that program. As we begin to see God's intention to tabernacle, tent, or dwell with us in the person of Christ who makes the heavens open to us. This point underscores an important, or, or, uh, excuse me, an important interpretive principle that we keep drawing your attention to as we're studying this book, that being that God is doing the same thing in history. God's doing the same thing in history. Different administrations, different institutions erected to push that, uh, that program forward, but it's one covenant promise to which God is being faithful amidst all of those differences. You know what that promise is? It's Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's one program. It's one purpose. It's one aim. It's one story. It's one people, and it's one Savior. God is doing this one thing throughout all of redemptive history. There are eschatological or end times flares going off here in the baptism of Jesus to tell us that he is the one who will open the heavens and bring them to earth. He is the one who is going to give us the Edenic access that we once had. 
and make it so that, again, heaven and earth are as they were at the beginning. What's happening in heaven is the same thing that's happening on earth. Now, another meaning-filled parallel here is found in the descent of the Spirit in the form of a dove over the waters. Where have we seen that before? The Spirit over the waters. Well, we've seen it in at least two places. Genesis 1-2, where the Spirit hovered over the waters at the beginning of the creation week. And Genesis chapter 8, when Noah sends out a dove to signal safety for humanity's new beginning after the flood. In both cases, the Spirit, the dove, and the water are indicators of new creation, new life, and new beginnings. And so it is with the baptism of our Lord. He came to inaugurate the new heavens and the new earth. We're taught that more plainly when we get to the epistles, but we learn it here in narrative form. You see, when the Spirit is over the waters, biblical revelation has taught us to lean in and look for something big to, to happen. When the Spirit is over the waters, something's about to go down. Right? Same thing that happened in Genesis 1, same thing that happened in Genesis 8, and here that scene is happening again at the baptism of the Lord Jesus. And since we've mentioned Noah, there's another important note to make about Jesus as the greater Noah. See, one of the things that the Genesis account makes very clear through its use of what may seem to us like redundant or clunky language is that people who are saved with Noah in the Genesis account are saved because of their relationship to Noah. The people who are saved with Noah are saved because of their relationship to Noah. I'll give you an example of that. I'll give you several examples of that. Genesis chapter 7, verse 23. Listen to the language here. He, that being God, blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Listen to this. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Only Noah was left, comma, and those who were with him in the ark. What a weird way to say that. <laughs> Why not just say Noah and his family survived? God saved Noah and his family. What a weird, clunky way to express that idea. But it gets clunkier as you continue reading in the Genesis account. You see, it was only, it was only those who were with Noah, the favored one of God, who were saved. The whole flood account following God's declaration of grace to Noah is structured in that exact same way. From the time that we're told that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, salvation gets tethered to Noah. Genesis 6.18, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. See how weird and clunky that language is? You don't actually need all of those prepositional phrases unless you're trying to make a particular point in the redundancy that you're using. See, the sons, the wife, and the sons' wives are redundantly tied to Noah with the use of that prepositional phrase over and over again, with you, with you, with you. Genesis 6, 19. And every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. That's totally unnecessary. <laughs> like, grammatically, that extra with you totally unnecessary, unless a theological point is being made. And of course, there is a theological point 
being made. Moses, the author of Genesis, is going out of his way to communicate that it is being with Noah that leads to life. It was being with Noah that led to life. If you're going to get out of that flood, you know where you got to be? With Noah. With Noah. That's how it's going to happen. With you, with you, with you. That's how the flood account reads. If you want to be saved, you got to be with Noah. So in the Mosaic Discourse on salvation from the flood, it's with you, with you, with you. Now in the Pauline Discourse on salvation, in particularly the Epistle to the Ephesians, what's the refrain there? In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. You see, Noah is just a type of Christ. He's just a symbolic foreshadowing. I don't mean by symbolic there that he wasn't real. (laughs) That's all real. That's all history. That all happened. And yet it was signaling a greater version of all of those real things that would be even broader in their significance, meaning, and scope. Noah was used of God to save a few people from a global judgment. Christ will be used of the Father to save many from an eternal one. See, in this baptismal scene, the water and the dove are Noahic echoes telling us that one greater than Noah has come, one who has found favor in the sight of the Lord and who extends the benefits of that favor far further than Noah did or could. Noah was favored by God, and that favor was extended to just a couple of people. See, Noah saves a few from a flooded world. Jesus saves the world. Again, all of this meaning is bound up in the symbols of this baptism. Another thing to note here is the broader biblical connection of water and spirit. Water and spirit are connected in far more biblical writing than just the creation account and the flood narrative. The prophets connected water and the Spirit to God's means of cleansing, blessing, and rejuvenating His people. Isaiah 44, 3, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Water, Spirit, blessing, all tied together here. Isaiah 32, 15, The Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. So the Spirit hovers over the waters and is poured out like water. He is a cleansing and eroding force in the lives of Yahweh's people. People are spiritually parched, and they need water for their souls. That water is the Spirit who brings life. But in order to access life, You have to be clean, don't you? You have to be clean in order to access life. You know where we learned that? We learned that in Genesis. Because you do remember that Adam and Eve were once able to eat freely of the tree of what? Life. When could they no longer eat freely of the tree of life? After they had been stained by their sin. you got to be clean if you want life. And that's why the Spirit, water, pouring, cleansing, life have to go together. you got to be clean if you're going to be able to access life. Life. The Spirit performs both of these roles, hence the Spirit and water connection. Yet another strand of meaning in this scene is heavenly anointing. 
Jesus is the Messiah, and here he's stepping into that role publicly. This begins Jesus' public ministry. As the ministry of John begins to decrease and come to an end, the ministry of Jesus starts to ramp up and begin. Jesus is the Messiah, and that means anointed one. In the Old Testament, we see that God's kings were anointed. You probably can think of the Old Testament texts that tell us that. God's kings were anointed. And then after they were anointed, they were endowed with God's spirit and enabled to rule. That's why scripture makes such a big deal of saying that after the anointing of David, the spirit departed from whom? Saul. The spirit departs from Saul when David is anointed king. And the Spirit rushes upon David. This is also why after David's sin with Bathsheba, he pleads for the Lord not to take what from him? His Spirit. Because this is his anointing to the kingship that comes with a special endowment from the Spirit that enables your rule. So what do we have in this scene? We've got this sky-splitting, Spirit-descending activity which is Jesus' kingly anointing, demarcating him as the Davidic messianic king. All right, so in these roughly six aspects of meaning that we just drew out of this scene by seeing the Old Testament images in it, we can see what God is doing through Christ. He's going to remake the world by causing heaven to descend on it through the giving of the Spirit to the body of Christ. Now, this happens first to Christ himself, because he's the first fruits. But as a good king, what Jesus receives from his father, he shares with his people. Because Jesus is a good king, what he receives from his father, he shares with his people. So everything that happened to Jesus personally in this baptismal scene gets made available to all of Jesus' people. That's why this scene is so important. Some of you have been looking at me this morning like, more symbols, more meaning from the Old Testament. Great. (laughs) We have to realize that everything that the Father gives to Christ, Christ gives to us. Through Christ, the heavens are opened to us. Through Christ, the Spirit descends on us. Through Christ, we are made kings who rule and reign with Him. Through Christ, the Father is pleased with us. Again, what Christ receives from His Father, He shares with His people. So everything that descends on Jesus in this scene is a picture of all of the things that descend on those who trust in his name. The symbolic meaning surrounding this baptismal scene tells us what God intends to do through Jesus of Nazareth, but the baptism itself tells us how God's going to do it. So all of these symbols are signaling, all right, it's going to be a new creation, heaven's going to be open, all of these wonderful things are going to take place, those Signals are telling us what to expect God to do through this Jesus who's in the waters of the Jordan. But it's the baptism itself that tells us how he's going to accomplish these things. You see, the Bible connects Jesus' baptism to his death. 
connects his baptism to his death. That's the how. How's all of this going to take place? See, when James and John's mother uh, walks up to Jesus and says, hey, could my boy sit on your right and your left? A very maternal thing to ask, trying to set her boys up for success. Right? When you come in your kingdom, can my son sit right there? That's going to be good. You remember what Jesus says? He says this to them. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Listen to this. Or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What's he talking about? He's talking about his death on the cross. He speaks of his death on the cross as a baptism. They're connected. Luke chapter 12, verse 50 The Lord Jesus says this, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So again, speaking about his distress at the thought of his atoning death, he identifies that atoning death as a baptism. Paul then picks up this same thread in Romans 6 when he tells us that we are baptized into Christ's death, further entrenching the connection between baptism and death. This connection brings us to the question, why was Jesus baptized? Why was Jesus baptized? John the Baptist told us in verse 12 of chapter 3 that this baptism was a baptism of repentance. So what's the sinless one doing there? He's got nothing to repent of. Why is Jesus in the baptismal waters of repentance? What's he doing there? Well, there he's doing the same thing that he's doing on the cross. That is, he's stepping into the place of sinners. He's stepping into the place of sinners. In his baptism, Jesus is identifying with and putting himself in the place of sinners, which necessarily anticipates the cross on which he dies for those sinners, in whose place he put himself when he walked into the baptismal waters. For Jesus to insist on this baptism was for him to insist on the cross. Because again, in this baptism, he's putting himself in the place of sinners. This also explains how it is that this is part of what is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Sounds like a cryptic phrase before all the explanation But what we see is that this is part of fulfilling all righteousness because Jesus is dealing with our unrighteousness by putting himself in our place. He's going to be our substitute such that the great exchange of his righteousness for our unrighteousness can take place. This adds a layer of meaning to our own baptisms, doesn't it? Because it tells us that baptism is a harbinger of death. Like, that's happy. You're going to do that on the 25th. Baptism is a harbinger of death. You see, you're not meant to survive your baptism. (laughs) Did you know that? You're not meant to survive your baptism. It's supposed to be the death of you. But not just death. Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, there's no share in the resurrection life of Christ without a share in the sin-bearing death of Christ. So to be baptized is to say yes to your death. 
You say yes to dying. The death of your selfishness, the death of your lust, the death of your pride, the death of your anxiousness, the death of your greed. Ultimately, the death of death. Because all of those things are killing you so long as they live. Scripture is exceedingly clear that the wages of sin is death. And listen to me, all sinners must die. All sinners must die, period. But God, in His inscrutable wisdom and overwhelming kindness, resurrects some of the sinners that He kills. That's the gospel. Not that because we're in Christ, we don't have to die. But that because we're in Christ, when God kills us, he brings us back to life. That's the gospel. It's newness of life that you and I can walk in even this week, throwing off that which is dead and bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. May it be so. Let's pray.